Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, so we have uh, Parsha's Balak, and Balak just on a on a stylistic level is is very interesting because you've got an, you've got perhaps the most um, dialogue of any any Parsha in the whole Torah, or at least as much. Lots of conversations recorded back and forth, and and one of the um, one of the high, one of the sort of the great benefits of that is that you get to really see personalities and true motivations unfold in sort of real time. So we're going to get into that a little bit, trying to figure out um, what makes us tick, and and that's a that's that's a window that gets opened up in terms of the dynamics of um, Bilam's personality. I'll go over the various figures in the in the in the story and 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 what's going on with them but just to give you an overview for now and also to look into this teaching more deeply um we'll 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 get to it we're gonna have to build to it but i just want to sort of alert you to where we're going um this idea of it says in the talmud that in the direction that a person wants to be led that's the direction they're led in and that's for the good and for the bad and so that that's actually very deep because, you know, in terms of um, the interaction between God, God's guidance of our lives and also the role that we play in terms of the implications of our own free choice, that, that's a very dynamic system that's unfolding in many different ways every single day in our own lives in terms of paths opening um, or, or not opening or just all sorts of, all sorts of things going on. So we're going to be able to get a deeper insight um, into that from, from, from this Parsha as well. Um, so so let's, let's dive in. Um, I want to set this stage. There, there are two primary figures here. And also, what's again, just on a stylistic level, what's sort of interesting about this, this week's Parsha is that the entire thing, um, just about probably 95% of this Torah portion is only dealing with non-Jews and non-Jews not dealing with Jews, really. In other words, you're inside, you're inside their camp and how they're processing the entire uh, perception of the Jewish people. So that's very different. There, it's, that's unique in the entire Torah to spend that much time inside, uh, outside of Moshe and the camp of the, of the Jewish people in the desert. So, so um, that as well. So we, we also know that from the time that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, appears on the scene in the Torah, in the beginning of the, the book of Exodus, uh, Sefer Shmos, he's mentioned in every single Parsha till the very end, and except for one, famously, and that's, there's a lot of, on that. But anyway, the point is, is that as far as I know, he's only mentioned once in this Parsha at the very, very end. So again, the, the, the bulk of it is you're inside the camp of Bilam and Balak and, and how they're trying to wrap their mind around who the Jewish people are and you know what to do about them. Okay, so there are two primary figures here that we're going to be referring to a lot. So let me just introduce them and let me just set the stage just historically what was going on at this point. So... The Jewish people are about to encounter the land of Moab on the way to Israel. So this is the march toward Israel. And again, this is the, the end of the 40 years of wandering in the desert. 
Everyone who needed to die in the previous generation because of the sin of the spies has already passed. And now this is the group that's going in. Although we learned last week, of course, that Moshe and Aaron are not going in. But nonetheless, they're still the, the heads of the Jewish people at this point, And they're leading them, even though they're not going to go in. But again, this is the, the home stretch. And the king of Moab is looking at this massive, massive group of Jews who have just defeated two awesome kings, Sihun and Og, who in our morning prayers, we still reference these military victories. Uh, I know it's in the Shabbos prayers. It might be in the daily prayers as well. But to this day, we're still talking about how we kick the pants of Og and Sihon. So if you can imagine that we're still talking about it, it was a major, major, major military victory. So they're just fresh off of that military victory, and now they're heading toward Moab. So the king of Moab, his name is Balak. And Balak is absolutely terrified because he, he sees that n- nothing is standing in our way. And, and he doesn't know what to do about it. And so he thinks that, well, militarily, nothing's happening. I'm going to get slaughtered. And he thinks... So Balak is trying to figure out what to do. And he knows that the, the source of power, if you will, of the Jewish people certainly is God. But the way that we sort of access that is through, the, through prayer. Uh, and so since that comes through the power of speech... He makes a sort of a strategic, you know, sometimes we use this phrase, the uh, physics of spirituality. So he wants to counteract the power of prayer and speech, which is our connection to God. So he says, okay, I'm going to get the greatest uh, master of curses and I'll put him up against those who pray. And his speech will come and wipe out their speech. That was, the, that was the calculation on a metaphysical level. And so he <clears throat> tries to hire someone named Bilam. So these are our two key figures, and we'll be referring to them a lot. There's Balak, who's the king of Moab, who's trying to protect his kingdom and knows that he's going to get wiped out, or is afraid that he's going to get wiped out. Incidentally, what's, what's, what's very... Interesting, and, and not, a, not a small detail here, is the fact that um, the Jewish people were instructed not to attack Moab. So the, the reality is, is that he actually had nothing to worry about. And, but yet, for whatever reason, he didn't think that, that that was going to be honored. And so he, this whole thing was, was unnecessary, really, because, because he was actually safe as much as he felt absolutely threatened. So, uh, like I said, that's not a, a small detail. I want to make sure to include that. But nonetheless, in his mind, he was about to get attacked. Um, you know, in our own lives, we have these stress levels. And a lot of times, we, we think that we're in tremendous jeopardy all of the time. And, you know, we have this, uh, you know, I think they call it fight or flight, you know, to you either... Get ready to fight or run away, one or the others. And so often, we're actually um, just incorrect. We're incorrect. 
And, and we put ourselves through just major trauma, often, like actual trauma, that can even result um, and manifest itself on a physical level, that the degree of stress that we put ourselves under can actually cause illness, God forbid. And a lot of times, it's just there's no source to it, meaning to say we've made an incorrect assumption. And uh, I know one time, just to give you just one example that just pops into my head, I remember one time I had to get to uh, a meeting and I, I was leaving the house late, and in order to kind of get onto the road that, that was really going to take me there, there were a lot of commercial streets, busy streets, that I had to get through in order to get onto the road that was going to go quickly, I hoped. And, and this commercial street, at this point, you know, was sort of like rolling the dice, because, you know, that could really be jammed up, and then that will just make me ridiculously late. Well, I decided that... that I had to do that. So I get on the commercial street and it's, it's, it's one of these things where it's four blocks that can take 20 minutes, you know, if you're, if you're in bad shape. And so, so it's bumper to bumper. And I'm thinking at the very beginning of the stretch and I'm thinking, Oh no. And I just, uh, I'm like, Oh, this is, I can't believe this, you know? And then what happened was I got to the corner and it turns out that it was just, there was some construction kind of thing just going on on that corner. And as soon as I got past that corner, it just opened up and it was free sailing. But I put myself through so much, you know, just stress thinking that if it's slow over here, it must be slow throughout the entire thing. And that was just an incorrect assumption. I remember another time, you know, I, which is, I had handed in a script and someone was uh, sort of like working the blackboard of all the episodes that they were doing that season and the, the, the production calendar and, and everything like that. And I, it was my first script on the show that I had turned in. And um, normally speaking, that w- when you handed in a script, they would put a, a check mark by it, meaning you handed it in, right? And because there was some delay, I don't remember what it was, but it required sort of rejiggering when the episodes were going to be uh, shot. So, so I looked at the blackboard, and I didn't know whether my boss had liked the script or not. And, you know, when you hand in your very first script on a new show, that's, that's a major moment in terms of whether you're going to be able to keep your job or not. So it's like there's a lot on the line. And I looked at the board... And I noticed that the, the episodes had been sort of reordered <clears throat> and then mine was now further down <clears throat> and where there had been a check mark of handing it in, that had been erased and there was no even check mark. So I thought, wow, you know, it's been bumped to the end and because it's in such terrible shape in his opinion that he's not even counting it as it's in, even the first draft has been handed in, right? And it took all of my, um, it was a devastating moment when I looked at the board, it took all of my courage to walk up to the person who I found out had done the blackboard thing, and he, and he said, oh, no, 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 and he explained to me that the, the reason why they had been rejiggered was a total production thing that had nothing to do with me, and that while he was redoing the blackboard, he had just forgotten to put the check mark by the fact that I had handed in the script. And so I had reached 
if you think about it, from the from the concerned employee, you know, semi-paranoid but understandably paranoid, you know, person, not wildly crazy conclusions. You know, it seemed like that's what was going on, and yet that absolutely wasn't going on. And you know, something that I, I certainly need a lot of work on is if you have a question about your status in a certain relationship, business, personal, it a lot of times the last thing that you want to do is ask because you feel like, you know, just how, you know, speak personally, you feel like I'm on thin ice already and if I ask, that's just going to, you know, like my relationship is bubble thin and this is just going to pop it and I'd rather be in the game than not in the game. And I'd rather be in the game and completely stressed out than not in the game. You know, at least if I don't ask, I have a possibility of maybe turning it around for the positive, you know. But a lot of times, if you just ask, you find out that you're actually in way better shape than you thought that you were in, and you save yourself so much pain, you know. And and um, like I say, it's, uh, you know, I always, I always reference the... The, the quote I heard in the name of Eleanor Roosevelt that a person should try to do something that scares them every single day. And, you know, I, I, I certainly would like to be one of the people who does that because it, it, um, you, it's, you develop a muscle and it's like working out. And if you condition yourself to, to, to confront those things, then after a while, your, your fear threshold changes. And those type of questions and those type of interactions just become, you know, less scary. And so this is something that uh, we can actually work on if it's, a, if it's an issue for you. You know, some people are very bold and forward and it's, it's not an issue for them. But I think a lot of people are in the other category <laughs> and it's a major issue. And so, so had Balak just known that the Jews were never going to attack him to begin with, he, this entire chapter of history never would have taken place. This whole incident with Bilaam never would have taken place. So, and then who knows? History would have changed in some very interesting way. Um, so anyway, so he hires Bilaam. Now Bilaam is, is one of the amazing figures in the Torah. And I don't want to say, I guess you could say tragic, tragic uh, 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 figures in the Torah, except that if you say tragic, that means that there was something good about him. <laughs> and and I, I don't know if there's anything good about Bilaam. They, they, they say that, um, that he had enormous potential and that his, his, he had almost like frightening potential in terms of what he could have been or perhaps what he was supposed to be. They say that what Moses was to the Jews, Bilaam could have been for the non-Jews. So if you think about that, that's, you know, who's given more to the world than Moshe? I don't know. I don't think anyone. So, so to think that Bilaam was in that category is, is, is frightening, actually, because he, he so didn't come to achieve really any of that, you know? So it's it's uh, it's it's really it's 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 bad. It's really bad. You know, I don't know how else to say it. Bilam is just one of the really 
the real chief villains um, that I guess ever lived, really. So, by the way, Kabbalistically, I, I heard from Rabbi Wolfson that 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 Bilam is the reincarnation of Lovin. Lovin was, of course, the one who tried to kill Jacob and the whole family of Israel before the nation even got started. Tried to cut them off in their roots. So, and Lovin gets traced back to, on a spiritual level, the snake in the Garden of Eden. So, so Bilam really, really uh, represents that that level of energy which, which, which could have been turned for the good. You know, and uh, so when you think about having your roots that deep in such a potentially transformative way in terms of the world, I guess you have to realize that you're up against something very huge. So, you know, just to end on a sympathetic note, perhaps, for Billam, um, I guess it, it's not just that he had such a... He didn't ha- See, the thing is, is that any time you want to do something great, you're going to be up against a very great challenge. So if you, you say to yourself, I want to do something good, so why is, why is God making it so hard for me? And the answer is because you want to do something good. <laughs> you know, Not that God doesn't want you to do something good, but if you actually want to turn the tide of things in the world, you have to realize that there's, again, to, to reference this idea of the physics of spirituality, there's an equal and opposite thing that's going to be up against you. And it's going to be commensurate in accordance with the amount of good that you want to do. And so if you want to do a lot of good, we have to know that we have to actually roll up our sleeves and work exceedingly hard. And that there is no contradiction between sort of wanting to do good and having the best of intentions and not being successful if we're not ready to recognize how much work will actually have to be necessary to to, to achieve that. And that's in our own personal lives in terms of whatever it is, all the good things that we want for ourselves individually and certainly for, for the world itself. So, so with that in mind now, to see what Bilaam needed to be, well, you know, you know, again, to, I think I just shared this story with you recently, but I heard from my father many, many years ago about the woman in the grocery store, you know, in the olden days, who's looking at the chicken, whether she wants to buy it, and she's examining every inch of it and separating the feathers and looking and holding it up. And the grocer comes up to her and says, lady, could you pass such a test? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the point being that, that for Billam to pass such a test, you know, could we pass such a test? You know, so... so uh, so let's, let's get into the story a little bit more and, and uh, what, what we can learn about it in terms of our own free choice and in terms of how God guides the world because there's some very practical lessons here and they're given over in kind of a subtle way but they're, they're, they're right here. So, so Bilaam, on the outside, and just to give you a, a bit of a quick biography of Bilaam for a moment. Um, uh, we talked about his greatness. It, it says, the, the rabbis teach that he was one of the three top advisors to, um, to Paro, to Pharaoh, uh, when the Jews were slaves in Egypt. 
and that he was the one who actually gave the advice, the advice to Paro to, to throw all the Jewish children the, 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 into the Nile River because the, you know, the redeemer of the Jewish people had been you know, kind of seen in the stars. So that was Bilaam. Bilaam was trying to kill Moshe from his birth. So that, that's, that's interesting. That's a, one fact about Bilaam. Another fact about Bilaam was that his children were the ones who left Egypt and were part of this group called the Arab Rav, the, the sort of the nations that, that went along with the Jewish people out of Egypt, and that they were instrumental, Bilaam's children, in making the golden calf. Uh, another bit of, uh, another Bilaam factoid. Uh, another thing about Bilaam, when the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, it says that there was this great earthquake, this great, sh- the world was shaking. And the people ran to Bilaam, the rabbi said, to ask, what's going on? And Bilaam said, God is giving the Torah to the Jewish people. So it's interesting that they, they could have run to anyone. They ran to Bilaam to show you his enormous stature, who he was, you know. Um, and so Bilaam... Bilaam was really seen as a, a very, very great person. And what's interesting, if you look at the way he's portrayed and, and, and the words that he uses, uh, I'll just... Um, so, so Balak, remember the king of Moab, who thinks he's going to be attacked, sends emissaries to Bilaam to curse the Jews. And Bilaam says that... Um, Here, I want to actually quote you the, 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 the words. Um, he says, you know what? Spend the night, after he gets asked to curse the Jews, he says, spend the night here and I shall give you a response, uh, a response as Hashem shall speak to me. Now, here you see a couple of things. One is his overwhelming confidence that if he has a question, God is going to answer. And God, in fact, does come and answer his question. So again, it shows you his level of closeness to God on one level that just like Moshe could just ask a question and have it answered immediately in great detail. So that's, that's, that's striking. Um, and uh, also that he says, God will come to me in a dream because the greatness of Moshe, what separated Moshe and makes him the king of prophets for all times, even when... Mashiach comes. Even the Messiah will not be as great a prophet as Moshe uh, is, was, whatever. Um, and they say that the difference is, is that Moshe could just receive prophecy in a waking state, in a totally alert state, whereas others received it in a dream. So Bilaam says, let me, in a dream, God will come to me. So you, here you see the difference of levels of, of greatness. So Bilaam was not at the level of Moshe, but nonetheless, he was communicating with God, seemingly, on, uh, on an ongoing basis, seemingly. So, so uh, God tells him, you shall not go with them, you shall not curse this people, for it's blessed. And then Bilaam says to the others, go to your land, for Hashem has refused to give me permission to go with you. So, so you, you have this sense of Bilaam being very, very upright. And, uh, and he also says that, you know, 
there's, a, there's an even more um, unambiguous statement that I want to read to you. But uh, here he says, later on he says, if Balak will give me his household of silver and gold, I cannot transgress the word of God, my God. He says, my God. He refers to Hashem as my God, which is instructive. To do anything small or great. In other words, I can't transgress the word of God, my God, to do anything small or great. So, in other words, you see here, outwardly, he projected an extraordinarily religious and righteous kind of demeanor. But when you begin to look between the lines, you see that there's um, something else going on. So, so let me just give you an example of that. Uh, when, when the emissaries of Balak report back to Balak that, um, that, that, uh, that Bilaam refused to go, um, Balak said, oh, you know what the problem was? I didn't honor him enough. I didn't send him uh, uh, fancy enough ambassadors. Right? So now he sends him a second shipment of much higher, much more prestigious emissaries of the court and, 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 and he asks uh, Bilaam again. And this is where Bilaam says, even if you sent me your household of silver and gold, I wouldn't be able to do it. Now, on the one hand, did, who was talking about silver and gold? No one was talking about silver and gold. <laughs> So I'll tell you something, and I'll, I'll, I'll alert you to something if you're not familiar with this already. Which is, if you listen to the way people talk, people will often tell you what it is that they have on their mind. So, for instance, I've noticed something, which is, um, you know, like, like here's a common thing that you hear in, in, uh, in, in sometimes re- religious circles. They'll say, you know, listen, I don't want to speak Lashon Hara. I don't want to say anything bad but, and then they, they say something absolutely horrible, you know? But they're telling you that they're going to say something bad. I don't want to say anything bad. Or, you know, something said, you know what, look, I, I'm not saying this because, I'm not, I, I'm not saying this because, and then they'll tell you what it is that's going, you know, fill in the blank. They'll often tell you what it is that's going on in their mind, or at least what their fear is, you know? And, and sometimes it's instructive. So when he says, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, even if you gave me all the silver and gold, I wouldn't do it. Meaning what? Give me all of the silver and gold, and then we'll talk about it. So, so after they bring the, the, the very fancy group of emissaries, um, uh, Bilaam says, look, I can't do anything small or great without God's permission. Spend the night and I'm going to see what God has to say. Now, seemingly, because just it was, I, I know that some time had passed. They're kind of condensing time in the telling of this narrative here. But, but seemingly, God has just communicated to Bilaam unambiguously. He says, don't go with them, send them away. God says, because... You can't, the, the Jewish people are, are blessed and, and you can't curse them. So there's no, there's no ambiguity whatsoever. 
So the fact that now that they've come back with really fancy people, and it seems like, wow, you know, Balak really wants to make a deal with me, thinks Bilaam, right? And there's all sorts of potential here. And, you know, from the personal standpoint, and I'm just speculating on this part, I think that there's a real, this is just me talking right now, but I think that there's a real, from Bilaam's point of view, a real rivalry between him and Moshe. Because Bilaam sees himself, and of course, like I said, the rabbis say that what Moshe was to the Jewish people, Bilaam could have been to the non-Jewish people. So in, in a weird way, Bilaam, as evil as he was, was not incorrect to see Moshe as a peer of sorts. Even though clearly Moshe was greater, but nonetheless, as a contemporary, you know, when he could still overcome his negative inclinations and things like that, that was a real reference point. That was his peer. And so, so the idea that he can go head-to-head with Moshe right now, and, and you know, Bilaam seemingly has his own relationship with God. God is communicating with, with Bilaam as well. So who's to say that Bilaam, you know, can't, can't take over, perhaps, or, or, or defeat Moshe and show his own greatness? And not only that, but I want to add one more idea, which is last week's Parsha, Parsha's Chukas, what happens? Moshe hits the rock and gets the death sentence. So, again, the, the Torah isn't always in chronological order. But, nonetheless, this is the first Parsha that's coming on the heels of that. And perhaps Bilaam is thinking, well, Moshe just went down. So maybe this is my opportunity to go up. And now I have this opportunity to go toe-to-toe with Moshe and the Jewish people. Maybe this is my moment to really ascend to the top. Certainly Moshe had gotten the better of him up until now. So just in terms of this, I'm just, again, speculating, but the, the psychodynamics. Because remember, the thing is, is that you... The thing about the Torah is, and the, the Torah only gets richer and deeper when you understand that these are real people with real motivations, you know, and, and that doesn't diminish them. That, you know, sometimes you hear, uh, well, the, the, the point being that, that this is a real person going through these things. Um, and it's actually scary, I think. It's, I, I think it's scary for us when you, when you approach it on that level because who knows who you are? Who knows what you're capable of? Who knows how the account of your life is going to be written? And things that sometimes think, seem like very small choices that you're making are perhaps not small choices, you know? And, um, and have big implications. So... So Bilaam says, even though God had just told him unequivocally, I'll read you the Pasuk, this is chapter 22, verse 12. This is the first time God spoke to him. You shall not go with them, you shall not curse the people, for it is blessed. So again, that sounds completely unambiguous. Nonetheless, Bilaam says, well, since you're coming a second time with fancier people and you seem really serious, and perhaps some of the other things that I suggested in terms of his potential rivalry with Moshe, things like this. He says, let me see what God says this time. 
All right. And now, now, Hashem says something really, really interesting. Hashem says, comes to him again at night, right? Again, a measure of Bilaam's greatness, that Hashem actually talks to him again. If the, if the men came to summon you, arise and go with them. But only the thing that I shall speak to you, that you shall do. Okay? So, now, now it seems like um, God changed his mind. And now, this is uh, always a point that I think is important to understand, which is that from the Jewish standpoint, we have to understand that that God never changes his mind. Okay? I'm going to explain that uh, more deeply in a moment. Um, You see, because theologically, we have a really big problem here. If you say that God changed his mind, that means that when he had his first idea, that it was incorrect and it had to be revised. And since we say that God is certainly omniscient, God knows everything, certainly he knows that if he has an idea that's not going to work out, he knows before he institutes the first idea that it's not going to work out. So you can't say that God changes his mind. Because if you say that God changes his mind, you're saying that God is not all-knowing. Okay, so then what about if, God forbid, someone becomes sick and then they become well? Did God change his mind? Well, you might say, well, God changed his mind, right? But no, we don't say that. So then how are we to understand the different fluctuations in terms of our ups and downs in lives and and, and things like this? So, So on a broad scale, because again, the reason just to tie back into the to Bilaam, just so you, you know why I'm talking about this right now, it seems like God changed his mind. First he said, don't go with them. And now he seems to be saying, okay, you want to go with them, go with them, but only tell them what I tell you to say. That seems to be a change in a plan. Now, I told you when we first began this talk that, that we were going to key in on this idea. And before I go into the changing mind and how God never changes his mind, let's make sure that we make the, the initial point first. God leads us in the way that we want to be led. And that's what's going on over here. It's not that God is changing his mind. Bilaam is expressing a desire to go in another direction. You see, if... Someone says to you, um, would you like to go out for Chinese food? And you say no. And then they say to you, are you sure you don't want to go out for Chinese food? The second time they're asking, they're not, they don't want to know if you want to go for Chinese food anymore. They're telling you that they want to go for Chinese food. <laughs> Which is probably what they were saying to begin with, by the way. <laughs> but now they're actually making it Active. You see? So that's a question that's not a question. That's a question that's actually a statement of a desire. Do you understand? So when he when so 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 God knows that. So when God hears Bilaam asking again, it's not that God is saying, Oh, okay, you know what? I'm changing my mind. No. What God is doing right now is he's leading Bilaam in the way that Bilaam wants to be led. In other words, God still has the same end goal in mind. 
But now he's going to lead Bilham to the end goal in a different way. Because now, like, you know, if you think of life as a kaleidoscope, now the kaleidoscope just turned. Now we've got like a different scenario, a different background, a whole different world. But God is still going to guide him and assert his will over him. But now he's going to take into account Bilaam's free choice and Bilaam's ability to also impact reality and to make decisions. And this is very crucial. Now we can go back to this idea in terms of how God leads us and that God doesn't change his mind. You see, God has a plan. God has a plan for all of us individually. All of us have uh, what we call a tikkun hanefesh. We have uh, something within our souls that, that, need to be, that needs to be fixed. You know, to tell you, we believe, Jewish people believe in reincarnation. And as Reb Shlomo put it one time, that this whole world is like a hospital clinic. Every single person here has something that needs to be fixed. Okay? So individually, God is leading us toward our own tikkun, our own individual fixing. So God is also leading the entire world on, on its way to the, what we call tikkun alam, which is the perfection of the world. Because remember, this world is not finished yet. This world is still in the process of being created. That's why we're here. We're here to participate with God as partners in terms of the finishing of the world, the perfection of the world. So that's God's end result on the macro level, which is the fixing of the world. Then in each of our lives on the micro level, each one of us has a personal fixing that needs to be done. So God knows what the end result is for each of us individually and for the world at large. Now the question is, how do we get there? That's the question. Now, you know, in, in cop shows, there's a, a, an old standard, which is we can either do this the hard way or the easy way, right? And I just saw a, an upcoming show, uh, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. They had a piece of dialogue on the screen that I thought was just brilliant, which is a, a, a woman is about to be interrogated by these two thugs, and he says, we can do this one of two ways. And she sort of smirks and says, is one of them the easy way? And they say, no. <laughs> so just classic bit of dialogue there, you know? So, so anyway, based on the decisions we make, because there are many, many, many ways to get to the goal that God has in mind for us. Many ways. So how God leads us to that place is based on a number of different factors. Now, this is a very large idea that I'm telling you right now. So what are the, what are the factors that lead us to getting to where we want to go in the best way possible? Because we want to get to, 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 to where we want to go the best way possible, right? So the, the number of mitzvahs that we're doing, the amount of prayer that we're expressing, the general spiritual state of the Jewish people in general in the world today, right? What past life rectifications we have to make? What future implications for our children and grandchildren and the people that we're associated with that need to be done? What are, as they say, schus avos, what the merits of our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents are? So all of these things combine together, right, to, to sort of give us uh, 
how we're going to be led. Um, so, so it's a it's a very it's a very multifaceted calculation that's made about whether we get to the place that we're trying to get in the in the in the in the easiest way possible or in the hardest way possible, and then based on our fluctuating merits, basically, we're we're led in different ways, and the and based on the choices that we make that we make, we're led in different ways. But when God leads us in one way or God leads us in another way, the crucial point is here is that God is not changing his mind. God is still leading us toward the same place. It's just how we get there is based on the decisions that we make. Is that, is that clear? So you see this. You know, I'll just give you a little illustration from my, from my own life. I remember I was wheeling my son my first son, when he was just a little boy in a carriage and um, in a stroller, and we were kind of going down a, a, you know, like a residential, you know, sidewalk, you know, on a quiet street, and there was a sprinkler going off on one of the lawns, and I saw he was maybe I don't know, I don't know, maybe say two years old or something like this, and I saw him reaching. His arm was just little, and you know he couldn't reach the the water. He wanted to reach the the water from the sprinkler, but he was far away. But I saw him trying to reach over. So because I saw him reaching over, I was behind him. So I guided him in the direction so that he could touch the water. Right? So that made me think of this teaching, which is that God guides us in the direction that we want to go. When we express an action, and a desire, and then even better than expressing a desire, we actually put work toward. I mean, he was reaching. For, for a little kid, that was real effort that he was making. And, and we put effort toward achieving that, then God sort of like brings us in that direction, okay? So, so now, now we have the next step, and now we're going to go uh, maybe a little bit deeper. So, so God says again, if you want to go with these people, you can go. But only tell them what I say you're going to only tell them what, I'm, what I tell you to tell them. Now, listen to this. This next bit is, is one of the most famous things because it's, uh, it's the talking donkey. You've heard of Willem's talking donkey, which is unique in the Torah. I don't think we have that, with the exception of the snake that speaks in the Garden of Eden, but that's already the Garden of Eden, and that's almost like another... Uh, level of reality, you know, um, that, uh, and some, by the way, there are some commentators, great commentators who say that Eve was just sort of projecting, you know, in terms of what, uh, what she heard. So, so, you know, I think maybe the more, um, standard understanding is that, you know, that reality was in a different place at that point before we ate from the tree of knowledge and, you know, this snake is talking, you know, so, okay, so the snake is talking, God can do anything. But, but there are those commentators who say, no, that that was, you know, uh, Eve either projecting or whatever it is. But here, no one says the, I think, I don't, as far as I know, everyone agrees the donkey was actually talking. So this is, and I heard from Reb Shlomo something very interesting. He said that um, what God was trying to instruct Bilaam, who had this degree of arrogance, was that Bilaam, because why do I say he had this degree of arrogance? Because Moshe, you see, 
It's just such a study in contrasts here. And it's so subtle. That's the thing. It's so subtle. But at the level of their respective greatness, even a subtle difference is massive. So Moshe is called the most humble person by God who ever lived. What does that mean, humble, in Torah? So so there's a story in the Talmud, one of my favorite stories in the Talmud, where a bunch of sages were sitting around a table. And one of them says, you know, um, humility, true humility has disappeared from the world. Meaning no one possesses it anymore. And there's some silence. And one of the sages, I forgot who, but one of the sages at the table says, I'm humble. (laughs) And then the other sages go, he's right, he is humble. Okay, I guess it hasn't disappeared from the world. (laughs) So I love that story because it tells you what true humility is. You see, we think that humility means not acknowledging anything positive about yourself. That's actually not the definition of humility. You see, like if LeBron James, right, who's, I guess, today's greatest basketball player, if he were to say, you know what, I'm not really a great basketball player, he's not being humble, he's lying. You see, there's, there's a difference. Humility, for someone to be truly humble, humble in the Torah context, they actually have to be able to recognize what is good about them or even what is superior or great about them, right? But simultaneously, they understand that all of that comes from God. So in other words, it doesn't mean to deny your own greatness or to deny what's good about yourself, but it also means not to turn it into an ego thing, right? That's, that's humility from the Torah perspective. So this, this sage at the table actually was humble. And there is no contradiction, if you're humble, to say that you're humble. But you have to be able to say that you're humble and to acknowledge it in a humble way. <laughs> Meaning to say that you recognize that this ability that you have to be humble also comes from God. There's a story, one of, one of the great stories in my opinion, um, uh, someone came to investigate uh, Kutsk because the, the Hasidic community of Kutsk was, was, was very radical. Their, their, their desire for the truth and, and everything like this, they, they would sing a song in the, in, in the day, A Fire Burns in Kutsk. That was the name of a town, a village in, in Poland. And, um, you know, someone from outside the community wanted to investigate, like, what's really going on in Kutsk? You know, like, you know, everything like this. And he was a Torah scholar himself, but wasn't Hasidic as far as I know, and no one gave him any covet, any honor at all. And I think he was bent out of shape because of that, because they felt like giving honor to each other was just a form of flattery and, and just just badness, you know. So anyway, so he was a little bit, you know, disconcerted that he didn't get more of a welcome, I guess. And he's learning with them, and he, he sees that the people in Kutsk, the, the Hasidim there, only stand for two people. One is the Rebbe, and the other is someone who is so unlearned and so poor that he has two bags on his feet for shoes, and he has a leaf on his head for a yarmulke. Okay? So this person 
and they and 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 this 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 rabbi from outside the community sees that they stand for him, and he can't he can't understand at all. So he asks, "Why are you according him honor?" Because and they explain to him, "Because this person is really nothing, and he's not boastful about it." <laughs> So, 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 let's get back to Moshe and Bilam right now. You see, Moshe's greatness and his humility is that whatever God is telling him to do, that's what, that's what Moshe is doing. And yet, Moshe also knows when to stand up for God, stand up to God like when he's trying to save the Jewish people a number of times. But when he's trying to do that, when he stands up to God, he's not trying to promote himself. He's trying to save the Jewish people. In other words, anytime he confronts God or disagrees with God, it's, it's coming from a place of righteousness and, and, and altruism and love, as opposed to ego. Here, when Bilaam says, you know, are you sure I can't go with the people to curse the Jews and get a lot of money? <laughs> like, where's, where's, what, what, what is the humanitarian objective of that? It's so clearly to satisfy his own ego. Now, again, these are very subtle levels. But, but here he is also standing up to God but for his own personal profit. So God says, okay, you can go with them. Now, look what the next chapter is. He gets on his donkey, and it says he saddles his she-donkey, which the rabbis understand that he had a physical, intimate relationship with his donkey, and that he actually used that for some occult form of divining things. So this is some weird occult practice that, that he was part of, but it also gives you a, uh, a, an insight into his uh, personal lifestyle, if you will. You know, he, he wasn't such an elevated guy. Um, and, uh, and, and he rides his donkey, and, he, and his donkey sees an angel blocking the path with a sword in its hand. And the donkey stops. And he starts beating the donkey because he wants to go. And, and the donkey starts up again, but, but the angel blocks it again. And then it happens a third time. And so what's so interesting here is that even before the donkey talks, you see that the donkey can perceive the will of God and he can't perceive the will of God. Meaning the donkey knows that God doesn't want him to proceed in this direction. I'll tell you something. I mentioned the Kutzka Rebbe before. The Kutzka Rebbe had a, 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 a lifelong friend uh, known to us today as the Ishvitzer Rebbe. And they grew up together. And the Ishvitzer Rebbe was another phenomenally great um, you know, Hasidic Rebbe and Torah master. And at a certain point, the Ishvitzer broke with the uh, Kutzker and, and, and started his own um, Hasidic dynasty. 
and they say, they say that, um, I guess he had been debating it and everything like this. Now, let me tell you something. There's Torah for everything, and that's the greatness of Torah. Every moment of your life, because we, there's no moment in our life when we're not standing before Hashem. So there has to be Torah for every single moment of your life. And a lot of people don't understand this. They think that, that, that the rabbis are, are being control freaks. And it's not, it's not the case. The point is, is that there is no such thing as a secular moment. And that if we're standing before God at all times, there has to be a holy way to do absolutely everything, no matter how mundane. And that includes putting on our socks and shoes. So the Torah way to put on your socks and shoes is first your right sock, then your left sock, then your right shoe, then your left shoe, then you tie your left shoe, it switches, that goes first, and then you tie your right shoe. So the Ishvitzer Rebbe was really, you know, contemplating like, you know, going out on his own, which was a, a very big deal since he had been a lifelong friend of the Kutzke Rebbe. And starting your own Hasidic dynasty, especially in those days, that was very, 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 very serious business, okay? And he was getting ready to see the Ishbitz, the, the, the Kutzke Rebbe, I believe it was on Simchas Torah, by the Hakafas, by the dancing with the Torah. And he put on his left shoe first. Now, you put on your right shoe first. Now, how many times probably in his life did he put on his left shoe first? Maybe that was the first time he ever did it in his entire life. And when he put on his left shoe first, he said, I'm not meant to go. And that was the night that they say that he decided to break with the Kutzke Rebbe. Now, now this is the Ishbitzer Rebbe. If I put on my left foot shoe first, I'm not going to move to Ohio. <laughs> you know, I'm not, in other words, that's not, don't learn the wrong message from that story. That, oh, I have to really be, you know, sensitive to signs and omens and things like that. That's not the point. If you're the Ishbitzer Rebbe and you're a towering spiritual giant and something like that happens, you know, you can tell me what to do. You, 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 you can draw your own conclusions from that. That's, that's not a practical lesson for us. But to someone who has a level of spiritual greatness to them, they understand what, what to do with, 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 with an action like that. Now let's go back to Bilaam. Bilaam is trying to go in a certain direction and his donkey won't lead him in that direction. Bilaam has just been negotiating with God as to whether or not he should go or not. Clearly, clearly the fact that his donkey is stopping and refuses to go, if the Ishbitzer knew because he put on his wrong shoe, Bilaam, who's compared to Moshe, if he can't get his donkey to go in the right direction, and this further irony, the fact that the donkey sees the angel and he doesn't even see the angel, Bilaam should know that he's not supposed to go, right? But at this point, his ego is just taking over. And he's just like, I want to go. And I want to go for me at this point.
So Reb Shlomo said, what's the lesson of the talking donkey? Because the donkey at a certain point, the, the opening line, you know, if you're, if you're actually scripting this, and you have the donkey, his donkey, who is his, you know, life partner on some level, right? Um, if you want to have the donkey talk for the very first time, what are you going to have the donkey say, right? Like, imagine you're writing this story. It's such a great opening line. You know, he's hit it three times, right? And the first thing the donkey says is, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? In other words, he just comes out complaining, like, what? Yeah. You know, it's not like, hi, yes, I can talk, don't, don't be worried, or how are you? Or, you know what, I think we have to have a conversation about this. Or do you think, it's like, hey, stop hitting me. <laughs> so, so, Reb Shlomo said that, that, that the talking donkey was to humble Bilam. That, that the intention was, Bilam, you think you're so great because I talk to you? I can make a donkey talk. So, so the whole dynamics of that was really meant as a slap on Bilam for Bilam to just sort of like, yo, just check the ego. But but Bilaam didn't, didn't get it. He, he didn't get it because at this point he had sort of invested in his own, inge- his own agenda. Okay. I want to make one more point and, and which this leads into and then we'll stop. So th- this was the deeper point that I was referring to earlier. Now I learned this from Rabbi Green and you see a very nice example of it over here. So hopefully this point is, is set up appropriately. If a person is to understand what the Torah is saying, and the way Rabbi Green said it was, if a person wants to understand pshat in the Torah, pshat means the direct meaning of the verse. And then, of course, we have many, many different levels, you know, in terms of the secrets contained in the verse and and. and and homiletics, and all sorts of life lessons, but there's also just what the verses say, just to understand it on a clear, direct level. That's pshat. That's called pshat. Okay? If a person wants to understand the direct meaning of the text, he will not be able to understand what the text is saying unless a person fixes their mitos. Your mitos are your character traits. Now, and mitos are a fascinating. Mitos is a fascinating word. You know, we 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 use that in conversation. We say, "Oh, he's got very good mitos," or "She has very good mitos," meaning to say that they they behave appropriately, they're generous, they're considerate. That that would be someone with good mitos. Interestingly, the word mitos or mida actually means a measurement. And and what's interesting about that is that you see, you, you could say, "Well, this person is." Um, He's, a, he's passionate about teaching. But if you're passionate about teaching and you keep on teaching till every single person in the room is asleep, then your level of passion doesn't have the proper measurement. <laughs> you know? In other words, sometimes it's, it's, it's appropriate, like, like you say, I'm, I'm very giving. Oh, you're so giving. You know what? I'm so giving. You know what I'm going to do? I'm gonna, when you're not at home, I'm going to go into your house and give all of your stuff away too. <laughs> That's how giving I am. 
Okay, so this is not a good mida. This is not this is a positive attribute with the wrong measurement. So in other words, you have to go over your personality. We all have to go over our own personalities and we have to see our character traits and make sure that we're exhibiting them in the proper measurements. So if a person has good midos, in other words, a properly measured proportional personality, they'll be able to understand what the Torah is saying. If not, they will just project their own personality onto the Torah. So in other words, if they see a, a, um, someone um, like Pinchas, we're going to read about Pinchas this week. Pinchas is the ultimate zealot. And what's so, so unique about Pinchas is that he didn't do it out of anger. He does some seemingly on the surface some vigilante act where two people get killed, right? And it's, But there wasn't a... The rabbis teach there wasn't a shred of anger in this. So, so this is, a, this is a, an awesome tightrope to walk. And, and someone who has anger issues themselves will see the story of Pinchas as a justification of anger. Do you understand? They won't understand the Torah because they'll project their own anger onto Pinchas and see him as a justification of being angry. So that's an example of unless a person has a rectified personality, they'll just be projecting their own nonsense and character flaws onto the verses and won't let the verses speak to them. Bilaam is a great example of this because at a certain point, in contradistinction to Moshe, Moshe is just whatever God wants, that's what he's doing. Bilaam has an agenda and is twisting around the words of God and the will of God in order to fit it to his own agenda. And God is allowing him to do it. That's the amazing thing. And again, that's this amazing dynamic of the way that you want to be led. That's the way that you're led. We want to be in this classroom where if you steal, if you steal, um, seeds from someone, so that's stolen, and I plant them, they shouldn't grow. If a, if, if, if a couple has an adulterous affair, there should be no pregnancy that results. How could something result from a, from a, from a, a thing that has been commanded not to happen? And yet you see a, a baby will be born and a tree will grow. Why? We want to live in a world where, no, and then we say that that's, that, that that's the way it should be. And, but this world is much more involved. This world is much more subtle. And it's not a weakness of God, God forbid. God is, is, is looking how the direction that we want to go in and then allows, uh, grants either way, for the good or for the bad, grants us assistance in terms of whatever direction we're going in. So this is, this is a very subtle world. It's a very, very subtle world. And, <clears throat> and, and the answer is that we really have to make the right choices. We have to figure out what is it that we want to achieve 
and then just do our best to really work toward those ends, to express to God and in our prayers talk to God and say, God, this is who I want to be. This is what I want in my life. And this is how I'm trying to achieve it. Please, God, help me to achieve these things so that we can make this very significant principle that the way in which a person wants to be led, that's the way that God gives them assistance, that we can make that work for us and work for the fixing of the entire world.